couple hours ago before church. The fog wasn't real bad, and this looks like it's getting progressively worse, and I'm glad you guys can make it out. Because I, I tell you, I am so excited over these next couple chapters. I just These are my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation, and maybe my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, Dustin, if you don't mind putting up that uh, PowerPoint timeline that we've been using for the last few weeks, I'd appreciate that. We are here tonight at the second coming of Christ and the importance of this and what this means and what this represents. So we've been working through our timeline here. And so here, second coming. And you can look, we're at the end. Now, I didn't put in the rest of the timeline the millennial reign of Christ because we'll get to that in Great White Throne Judgment. But, but this is the second coming. Now, the second coming is different than the rapture. And a lot of people get these two events confused. If you look, there's first off seven years between them. Rapture, we meet Jesus in the air. Second coming, we come back with Jesus. Rapture, Jesus stays in the air. He doesn't come down on the earth. Second coming, he literally comes and sets foot on the earth. And he comes and he sets foot on the earth and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And it's called the millennial reign of Christ. And this is what we're so excited to get to. The whole book of Revelation has been building to this point. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. This is the big event where God literally comes back and sets up a kingdom for a thousand years on this earth. This is the way it was supposed to be. And and I am so looking forward to getting into the millennial reign and talking about our role as we get to rule and reign with him, about the curse being reversed, what it's going to be like when the curse is reversed, when it comes to dealing with animals and age and health. I, I just absolutely love studying and talking about the millennial reign. But for right here, right now, we're at the literal return of Jesus on this earth. And what we believe and what we preach out here is the literal, physical return of Christ that comes down on this earth. And I will show you why we believe this. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free, slave, small, and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, this has been built up. Battle of Armageddon, that it looks like the world's forces come together. Now, why are they coming together? It looks like it's a series of battles that eventually culminates in this battle here in the plain of Megiddo, which is the Battle of Armageddon. Now, are they fighting each other? Are they coming back to all fight God? You know, the Bible seems to hint at a little bit of both. It kind of looks like they're all fighting against each other. We studied that out in Daniel chapter 11. And now what it looks like as Jesus gets ready to return, they choose to all combine their forces together and fight God. Did you check that out in verse 19? And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war 
against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What is that not the biggest example of pride you can imagine? We're going to take on God. I mean, and that, that's really what's going on here is this concept of we're going to combine our forces together and take on God. And it's such a vain, vain, foolish thing. Psalm 2, you don't need to turn there, seems to be a prophetic psalm talking about this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointing. Let us break their bonds in peace and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I love that. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Shall laugh. But this is what's going on. And I tell you, this is going to be a dramatic entrance. And when I say this, I say this as a compliment to God. He's always had a flair for doing things. And this is going to be the heaven's opening. And you just, you just envision this. Envision this. And sometimes I've seen these clouds and they're just beautiful and the sun's coming through them. And I just have this envisionment of, okay, it's going to be like that, but even better. The clouds open. You have millions of people in this valley of Megiddo and war. And all of a sudden the clouds open and there's God himself coming down. And it looks like, I don't want to speculate, verse 19. Let's all point our guns at him and shoot. And that's what's going on at the second coming of Christ. What happens when he literally comes down? Oh, I love this. Go with me to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. But it's a wonderful book on prophecy, and especially Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 goes into detail about what will literally happen at the second coming of Christ. Zechariah 14, start in verse 1 with me, please. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is a term used in the Old Testament to talk about God's judgment. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This seems to be talking about the battle of Armageddon. Everybody's gathered together. The city shall be taken. The house is rifled. The women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Things are going to be ultimately falling apart. You've been with us through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. The world is falling apart. But then verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. I think that's referring to Armageddon. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He will literally come down, place his foot on the Mount of Olives right near Jerusalem, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Talk about an entrance. He just doesn't show up. He comes down and he splits a mountain. Splits a mountain. Think about the first coming. He was born in a manger, visited by shepherds. Second coming? Nah. I'm going to put my foot on a mountain and split it. Split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, from the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. 
That's in a neat picture. Shall come to pass in that day, there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but in evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that the living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Now we're going to get into this a little bit more. He splits the mountain and creates a new river. Half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. And both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. He is finally king. When he came the first time, they mockingly made him king. You remember that. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They put the purple robe. They mockingly bowed down to him. There will be no mistaking at the second coming he is king. Verse 10. The land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's winepress. He's going to flatten the mountain, create a river, Make a valley, make a plain, and then literally rise up Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem has always been the key. It always has been the key. We like to think of in a very American-centric mindset. That's, That's not important. It's Jerusalem. Verse 11, the people shall dwell in it. And no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Here is your battle of Armageddon. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor, raise his hand against his neighbor hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and on all the cattle that will be in the camp. So shall the plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hopes and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This is why when you read in Revelation 19, he invites the birds to this feast. Now, now please remember, we talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb last week, and we made this comment. You're either invited to the supper or you are the supper. You have to choose. You want to be invited to the supper. That's the goal. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the church and, and God and Jesus there being married in that symbolic union. And it's the reception, if you will, the party, if you will. But those that choose not to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, there is a supper, and this is the supper. This is the second coming of Christ. Mountains splitting, valleys being made, plains being made, Jerusalem being lifted up, people's eyes dissolving. This is not a battle. Dare I say it's a massacre. And before you think, well, that just sounds awful. Guys, you've been with us in this study. We've had the 144,000. We've had the two witnesses. We've had the rapture. We've had all these symbolic events and all these actual events of, of the gospel going out. And the world just keeps rejecting. Keeps rejecting. One more passage on this. Can you go with me to Ezekiel 47? Ezekiel 47. Let's read this, and we'll take a quick break to see if we got any questions. Ezekiel 47 goes into more detail about the literal second coming of Christ. Ezekiel 47. Start in verse 1 with me. It says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
for the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Ezekiel's been given this vision here. If you've never studied out of Ezekiel, the last half of Ezekiel is about this millennial temple that's going to be built where there will literally be sacrifices and Jesus will rule and reign from this place. And now he's talking about this river that's coming out. Well, we just read about the river now in Zechariah 14. And this is, the, this is the beauty of the Bible. Always let the Bible be its own commentary. So if you find a passage in the Bible and you're reading Zechariah 14, you're like, what is he talking about with the river? Start looking for other references to rivers. And then you can start combining these puzzle pieces together. So this river goes out. And what's going to happen here? It seems a little weird. But what happens is they walk alongside the river. And every now and then Ezekiel gets in the river. And the river starts being at his ankles. And it starts being at his knees. And it starts being about his waist. Because the river just keeps getting bigger. Flowing more. Verse 2. He brought me out by way of the north gate. And led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the water, and the water came up to my ankles. Verse 4, and he measured 1,000 and brought me enough, the water, excuse me, brought me through the water, and the water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through, and the water came up to my waist. You see this river keep getting deeper and bigger. Again, he measured 1,000 cubits. It was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that cannot be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. So now this river has gotten bigger and wider, and now there's trees. This is in the middle of the desert. Verse 8, Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters, it will heal. Now what is he talking about in verse 8? That's the Dead Sea. Now, is that not pretty cool? The dead sea becomes alive. Verse 9, it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. This, this, so Jesus in Zechariah 14 comes down, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, splits the mountain, makes a valley, creates a river, makes a plain, rises Israel. This river is now going out from the temple, hits the Dead Sea, turns the Dead Sea alive. Verse 10, it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Inglium, and they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea. Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? Exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed, They'll be given over to salt. So there's still going to be sections of the Dead Sea that is not made alive. It'll be a marsh. It'll be a swamp. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Now, there's a lot of spiritual here. There's a lot of practical here. I wish we had more time. Because this stuff is just absolutely amazing. Okay, let's talk about the practical first. The world has been completely destroyed. If you weren't with us with the bowl judgments, you can't find a glass of water to drink. There's no fish. You can't find food. So Jesus comes, and one of the first things he does in the second coming is he provides literal healing and food and fish for the world. The world is going to have to come center around Jerusalem now for a while. The way it was supposed to be. 
So people will come here, and there will be literal physical healing, I believe, verse 12. There will be literal food for them to eat, verse 12. Fish, this is the place to be. Now, I do have to throw this out there. There are some people that take this and make this all completely spiritual, not literal. I do not see that. I see this as literally happening. There's just too many references. I mean, they're talking about fishing and fishermen and eating. I understand there's certain spiritual aspects of that in the Bible, but when you line this up with Revelation 19, Ezekiel 47, Zechariah 14, this looks like this is literally going to happen. And this is how the earth is going to start to be rebuilt. Please remember, over these seven years, the earth has been completely destroyed. Grass, trees, fish, water, asteroids, meteorites. I mean, we've been through the study. You know the world has to be almost restarted. And that's exactly what the second coming of Christ is. That's what's so absolutely amazing about this, the literal return of Christ. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of the spiritual here in a second. But let's just stop for a second and make sure we got the literal, physical return of Christ down on what that looks like. Any quick questions, comments about this before we start now building on this? Nope? Okay. Now, that's what's literally physically going to happen. Now, how does this line up spiritually as well? We don't need to turn to all the verses there, but you've got to remember some of these passages. First one I just want you to remember, 1 Corinthians 6, it says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we got that down. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Please remember what Jesus then said in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is literally happening during the millennial reign? The temple is literally having a river come out of it that is rivers of living water. See, so right now we are spiritually living this out. We are supposed to be the temple, and we are supposed to have water coming out of us that is refreshing, bringing salvation to people. And just, I'm not going to get on my little tangent with this. The purpose of your life is not to live for yourself. The purpose of your life is to proclaim Jesus Christ and be a light and a witness in all you do. That's where you're going to find true fulfillment. You are a temple that has a river coming out of you that you're supposed to then go proclaim the gospel. In the millennial reign, it will literally happen. But Jesus said it's actually happening right now spiritually, which is an amazing thing. And so we have this literal river. We have the literal food. Once again, food is going to be limited. We're going to have the literal healing of people. That is going to be a limited. I mean, can you imagine surviving the tribulation? The food will be gone. Physically, the destruction. This is what's so exciting about the millennial reign. And like I said, we get into the millennial reign here in a couple weeks. We don't get into it tonight. But this is what's going to happen. So we got the physical. We got what the spiritual represents Now, let's jump back to Revelation 19. Let's break down the description here of Jesus. Revelation 19, verse 11. Please note, way back in our beginning study in Revelation 6, when we did the first seal judgment, we talked about the Antichrist riding on a white horse. Here's where you get the real guy on the white horse. Verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Once again... Some people take this as as symbolic. He's really not riding a white horse. I think he's really riding a white horse. Maybe that's just my childhood fantasy coming out. I don't know. 
But I see him riding a white horse. I could be completely wrong on that. What does white horse represent? White horse represents victorious. Uh, Roman history here, if you were a winning general in a battle, your honor was that you got to ride in on a white horse. So people would understand the symbolism of that. Please note what Jesus chose to ride in on during the triumphant entry. Was it a white horse? No. What did he choose to ride in on? Donkey. Because he was showing his humbleness. Second coming. And when I say this, please don't think I'm putting God down because I'm not. Second coming, there is no humbleness. Second coming is I am coming to do what? Verse 11. I'm coming to judge and make war. I'm not the baby born in the manger. I'm not the meek man. I'm not the guy coming in on the donkey. I'm coming as the conquering king to take back my world that I created from sin and death. And I'm going to rule and reign for a thousand years. That's what's so amazing about this. So he comes in on the white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true. Faithful and true, this should ring a bell with you. This goes all the way back to Revelation 3. God's description of himself in Revelation 3 was faithful and true. You see this in Revelation 21. You see this in Revelation 22. Faithful and true. If you were living during the tribulation at this time, it would be hard for you to think that God is faithful and true. You would think that you have been left out. You would think that you have been abandoned because the world is literally falling apart. Now let's stop real quick and make an application point at this point right now. Some of you are here tonight and you're doubting God's faithfulness and truth because your world is literally falling apart. You have financial problems, health problems, you have marriage problems, life problems, you have problems, and is God really faithful and true? The second coming of Christ proves that he does not forget us. The second coming of Christ proves that he is all-powerful. The second coming of Christ erases any doubt in any way whatsoever on who God is. He is faithful and true. And verse 11, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because we went over God's righteousness when we did the bold judgments. When we go back and look at the bold judgments there in Revelation 17, um, excuse me, Revelation 16, it is really easy to stop and say, this is righteousness. There's so much destruction. It is righteousness because... God has given them numerous opportunities to repent. He has given them numerous opportunities to get saved. We've gone through the 144,000, the two witnesses, the angel flying over heaven. The world has rejected him, constantly, consistently rejected him. So in righteousness, he is now judging and he's making war. That's what verse 12 means. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Fire in the Bible represents judgment. It's piercing. It sees things. See, we don't see stuff. You come on a Wednesday night, you could be faking it tonight. I'm here on a Wednesday night, I could be faking it tonight. You don't know. We look good, we sound good for an hour. It's amazing how as a church, and I don't mean Harvest Fellowship, I'm saying the body of Christ, we think we know our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we base that off of one hour being with them throughout the week. How are they doing spiritually? Oh, he was there Sunday, he's doing great. Well, how was he on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? I don't know. But that one hour on Sunday, he was really good. We don't know. The piercing eyes of Christ that are like a flame of fire sees all truth. He knows. That is not there to scare you. It is there to make us realize he knows my innermost thoughts. He knows my innermost actions. He knows everything about me. So when he returns in this world and he judges it in righteousness and truth and makes war, there's no doubt about it. You remember when Jesus went and cleansed the temple with the whip, right? What we forget a lot is if you read the passages before that, he went to the temple the day before and walked around. 
He just didn't show up at the temple one day in anger. He went the day before, analyzed it, looked at it, got the picture of it, and says judgment needs to come to this temple. The Lord has been watching this world for 6,000 years. And he has analyzed it, looked at it, and said, they're unrepentant. Judgment must must come. So this righteousness and judgment, the eyes of fire, he sees it all. On his head were many crowns. Now this is where we have to get into a little bit of uh, Greek language. There's two words for crowns in the New Testament. The one word for crown represents a crown that uh, you would get for winning a race, You'd get for special occasions, maybe as a general, once again, you would get a crown. There, there is a nuptial crown, or maybe like the uh, bride would wear something. That's a completely different Greek word. This word for crown is a crown that's only used for dignity and kings. So the word for used for crown back in the Gospels, when he had the crown of thorns on him, is not the same word. Even though it's both translated crowns, it's a completely different word. This word is only used in Revelation, and it's only used for Jesus and the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist, for his brief moment, will rule as king. But then Jesus shows up in the second coming, and verse 12, he goes, yeah, I got the real crown. I have the real one. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. That's kind of an interesting passage, isn't it? Think about this. Every time we've ever talked about names in the Bible or God gives us a new name, we've always said names represent ownership. So therefore, when we had our children, we had the blessing, the fun of picking out their names. And for the rest of their life, they have to carry that name. They didn't choose it. We chose it. No one owns God. Who gets to name God? God gets to name God. So therefore, he's got the name that no one knows except him. So that's his name. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. What blood? I look at it as being the blood of the cross. Some people look at it as the blood of judgment. And his name is called the word of God. Please note that's how God used to describe himself. Back in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the way he chose to describe himself. What does a word do? A word represents something. If I say the word tree, even though you do not see a tree right now, in your mind you can think of a tree. The word represents the image. So Jesus being the word of God is the image of God. Also the idea of word represents a message. If I come and say I'm going to give you a word... Oh, I have a word from somebody for you. I have a message. Jesus is the message that God sent us. So he is the word of God. Verse 14, who's with him? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. I think that's us. And the way I think that's us is this. We were just described as wearing fine linen just a few verses earlier. Take a look at verse 8, same chapter. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, some people come and say you can find a verse in the Bible that says that the angels are also clothed in in linen, and that's true. But you know what? We're described as wearing fine linen in verse 8. We're described as wearing white back in the beginning of the book of Revelation. We're described as all the stuff, white, clean. It looks like we're with them. And maybe that's why I like the idea of the literal horse in verse 14. I want to ride a horse. Wouldn't that be fun? Second coming of Christ, he opens the heavens, he's on the horse, and we're just right along with him. You know that? Now, some people are bothered by this. Because it says in verse 14, the armies of heaven. How can I go from being the bride in verse 8 to now being the army in verse 14? 
Because there's so many different roles we have in the Lord. But please note the idea of being the army in verse 14. There's only one weapon mentioned in this whole chapter, verse 15. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. I'm not suited up for battle with this. I'm along for the ride. Christ said it's finished on the cross. He did not ask for James's help. So he's got the second coming all down. I just get to be along for the ride. I was going through this with my boys, and they were so utterly disappointed. They thought they got to fight. There's no fighting. Can you imagine God coming up to us and saying, hey, guys, I need help. There's a lot more people at this Battle of Armageddon than I thought. I can take out three-fourths of them, but you guys got to do the rest. No, he's God. So he comes out. Is there literally a a sharp sword coming out of his mouth? I don't think so, because he's always referred to the word of God as being a sharp sword. His word is what destroys them. We've been talking about through the book of Revelation, the thundering of his voice. His word is what destroys them. If he can, by word, create the heavens and the earth, then he can, by word, defeat this. He strikes the nations, not us. He rules them with the rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He does it, not us. We are literally along for the ride. So, that's a pretty neat wedding gift. We get married, and then he says, hey, you want to go to war with me? So that's what he does, and we get to go along with him. Now, this idea of ruling them with the rod of iron, oh, we got enough time. Let's go to Zechariah 14 real quick. Should be easy for you to find there. Remember, it's the second last book in the Old Testament. We were just there. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because this is getting into a millennial reign, but it's important right now to talk about Jesus will literally rule and reign on this earth. He, he will literally be here in the temple. It says in the book of Isaiah that we're going to be able to go to the temple and hear him do Bible studies. That's amazing. Now, we will be raptured out already. We are the body of Christ. But the people left in this world will be able to go to the temple and hear the Bible say. So, like, when you look at the end of the book of John, where John says that if we would write down everything that Jesus did, there would be enough books in the world to cover it. People are going to be able to go ask him questions. What was it like, etc. I was just talking to someone the other day, and I said, I wonder what it was like just walking from point A to point B with Jesus. Because they're always walking. They would spend days walking. Did he joke around? I mean, what, did he tell stories of what it was like when he was a kid? It's just fascinating to think about. But what does it look like for him to rule the rod of iron? Verse 16, Zechariah 14. So come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're not able to get into this tonight. So I know it's a fun study. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. We are going to be reinstituting during the millennial reign Certain feasts and certain sacrifices. We'll get into that in Ezekiel. It shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord will host on them, will there be no rain? Now that sure gets church attendance up. I'm just telling you as a pastor, can you imagine if I would say, listen, if you don't want to come to church, that's fine, but no rain for you. God says, I have a feast. I'd like you to come. There's going to be some nation in the world that says, yeah, I don't want to go. God says, here's the deal. You don't come to pay homage, pay respect, and worship. There's no rain. Verse 18, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations, which do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. You may say, okay, that sounds a little bit like forced worship. It's forced attendance. It's not forced worship. They will come. He rules with a rod of iron. I'm telling you right now, the millennial reign is going to be completely different than what you can imagine, what I can imagine. There is so much awful, 
evil in this world, awful evil in this world, and you know that. Can you imagine somebody ruling with a rod of iron and not in anger or in frustration, but in complete, utter justice? So therefore, when evil happens, it is dealt with immediately. Verse 19, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day, there shall be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Him ruling with the rod of iron is going to be the most effective justice system we will ever see. And it looks like, and once again, I'm getting ahead of myself, part of our role as the raptured out bride of Christ is we get to rule and reign with him. So it's an amazing thing, but that's what it means to be ruling with a rod of iron, treading the wine press. Okay, verse 16, we've got to finish this up here. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no question about it. For the last few years, we had the Antichrist wearing a crown saying he was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've had many different men and women over centuries and millennia before saying they were King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord will completely, utterly prove at the second coming he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now we get into verses 17 through 19 about the death and destruction that happens at the second coming of Christ where these armies chose to fight against him. Just remind yourself of verse 19 one more time. I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's what mankind is going to do, wants to do. And once again, I'm not making a joke. It's either you come to the marriage supper of the lamb to eat, or you come to this, the supper of the great God, verse 17, and you are eaten. So let's stop here for a second. Any quick questions, comments about anything here? John. Oh, where it's clothed with a robe dipped in blood? Because of the significance that they mentioned, he will be wearing. Yeah. I'm just curious if there's any significance between. I'm just going to let you keep digging your own hole. Um, No, I'm thinking. No, I'm thinking. You know, I guess what I look at it is in the Gospels where they said they took, they cast lots for his garments. I've always looked at that as that is the most, you know, degrading, humbling thing. This guy has nothing. And now they're even going to take his clothes right in front of him while he's hanging on the cross dying. So I've always looked at that as the ultimate humbleness. If you go back to like Isaiah, or you know, he was humbled more than any man. So I don't know if I would ever tie that into verse 13, but it is interesting that he does come back with the robes of being the king and God that the man tried to take from him. That is interesting there. But I've always looked at it as the other one in the Gospels is basically... They're taking everything from this guy. I mean, there's how how despicable. I mean, just that we're going to cast lots for your clothes right here in front of you while you're on the cross. But here he's coming back in verse 13, clothed with a robe, dipped in blood. Dipped in blood. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, Ellen. No. Yeah. Great question. And this is what I love about the millennial ring. And we'll do this real quick. We'll go into more detail here in the next couple weeks. Okay, what happens at the second coming of Christ 
is we're going to get into next week uh, the beast, false prophet, and Satan are thrown into uh, the fiery pit for a thousand years. Am I still on? Okay, here we go. And so there's something that happens called the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations is this. Anybody left alive at the end of the tribulation, and there will be believers and non-believers that are left alive at the end of the tribulation, they are now then sorted, sheep and the goats. It's Matthew chapter 25. The goats are the non-believers. They are not allowed to go into millennial reign. They are then sentenced to hell. The sheep that are left, the believers that got saved during the tribulation and survived the tribulation, they will go into the millennial reign. So the millennial reign starts out with only believers, only believers. But in the millennial reign, it's a thousand years of healing and peace. There's a great passage in the book of Isaiah that's saying that if somebody would die in the millennial reign at the age of 100, they'd be considered a child. Think back to when we came out of the Garden of Eden and you have Methuselah living 969 years. So the earth is going to be repopulated very quickly, but there's going to be a whole generation that is born that are not believers. And they are not believers. Now, when I say they're not believers, let me explain myself. They see Jesus, they know Jesus, but they have never had Satan in their lives to pull them away from Christ. So then after the end of the thousand years, Satan is released, and then those people have to make a choice of Satan or Christ. So to answer Ellen's question, the people going into the millennial reign are all believers, but they will have kids and have kids pretty soon, it looks like. All those kids being born have never had to choose between Satan or Jesus Christ, and therefore... Are they not believers? Well, they haven't had to make the choice yet. So at the end of the thousand years is when they will have to be determined. Ryan. And that's why the member the word revelation means unveiling. This is the revelation of Jesus. It is the unveiling of his true nature. You almost learn more about who Jesus is from revelation than you do in the Gospels because you see the full thing of it. And you're right. Uh, as a Sunday school class, we don't hand out coloring pictures of the second coming with body parts laying around in blood. Um, Ryan, you're an artist. If you want to draw something up, get Tony to clear it, and the kids can go back there and color the supper of the great God of the flesh being eaten by birds. You're right. We don't, we don't focus on this part. But this is what we've been praying for. And, and you've heard me use this example all the time. Every time we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, this is what you're praying for. You're praying for the return of Jesus Christ. Anytime in frustration you said, oh, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Can't, can't, we just, can't we just be done? Can't you just return? You may not realize what you're praying for. You're praying for this. For him to come and do all this. Because this is what righteousness, judging, and making war looks like. Yeah, Karen. At what point then is it going to be where every knee will heal God? I would not say that that is the second coming. Because you still have Satan that's only going to be um, bound for a thousand years. And he's going to be released. And when he is released, he leads a rebellion in which people will rebel against the Lord. What you're referring to is uh, Philippians 2. It's, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. If I had to say, if that verse is talking about a specific point in time, I would put that after the great white throne judgment where people are cast into hell. And you've heard me say this before. There are no atheists in hell. There are none. 
anybody in hell understands who God is and understands who Jesus Christ is. Yeah. Are they going to be aware of it? That's an interesting word to use. And the reason I say that's an interesting word to use is because in Thessalonians... Um, it says in Second Thessalonians 2.11, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. As we've been talking about in Revelation here, something has to happen where the Antichrist has to explain the rapture. And it looks like he has some type of delusional lie that he gives the world that they believe. So will everybody believe? I'm going to say no. Because there's going to be something that they come in and they explain it. And we talked about this the last couple of weeks. And let me just repeat this. You have to remember certain world religions are not going to be affected by the rapture. They're not. Christians that are born again and saved in Christ are affected by the rapture. Muslim nations that are 99% Muslim, the rapture is not going to affect them that much. Yes, there's an underground church there, but it's not going to affect them a whole lot. Nations that are Hindus, that are Buddhists, that are pagan, are not going to be affected much by the rapture. So there's still going to be a very strong religious system in this world set up. The Muslim faith will continue on. The Hindus will continue on. The Buddhists will continue on. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of quote-unquote Christian denominations that are going to continue on. So therefore, the rapture is going to affect a lot. But the world religious system will keep on clicking because they're not going to be raptured out. And so they're just going to keep their faith going. And Antichrist will combine this. That's religious Babylon that we talked about in uh, Revelation 17. He's going to take this religious system and he's going to utilize it. And I think he's going to bring the whole world religious system together as one. And it's going to eventually become worship of him and Satan. Anybody else got anything here before we close up? Yeah, Mary. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I believe there's. Yeah, I believe it's going to be. It's the. It's called the Old Testament saints. Um, it's uh, Daniel twelve one and two. I, I believe that it's going to be them, the church, and then we also see in Revelation twenty verse four, it's going to be what is called the tribulation saints. So it looks like the people returning are going to be the church, Old Testament saints. And tribulation saints. And we get that from Daniel 12, from Revelation, and specifically from Revelation 20, verse 4. So that's what it looks like, the group that's coming back with them. Yes, we'll be literally ruling and reigning on this earth. Now, this is where it gets really fun. There looks to be something called the New Jerusalem that is going to be uh, orbiting the earth about the size of the moon. And we'll get to that in Revelation uh, 21, I believe that is, Revelation 21. Because when we come back, we will have our glorified bodies. We will be like Christ after uh, his death and his uh, resurrection. We're not going to be affected by the physicalness of the earth. So we're, we're living in that different body, but we get to be part of this earth that's going on ruling and reigning with them. It looks like we come to earth to work and then we go home to sleep at the New Jerusalem. I'm kind of oversimplifying it, but that's kind of what it looks like to be. And it looks like we have different areas. And it's like somebody goes, ah, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm over Canada. You know, so that's what it kind of kind of looks like here. We get to rule and reign with him because from what we can tell, Jesus will have his glorified body because he's God. But just as with after the ascension, um, 
he's going to place himself in Jerusalem. And so he's going to rule and reign from, from Jerusalem. He uses us to go out and do things. That's part of our ministry. That's part of the blessing of what we get to do. So anytime I run into somebody who's like, well, I think heaven sounds so boring. It's like, hey, you haven't studied out the Bible, man. You get to come back on a horse. You get to come back on a horse, and you get to, for a thousand years, you're working. I'm telling you right now, it's going to be kind of fun. So, anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, Marv. And it's a great point about the knees buckling. And once again, going back to the fairness, justice, righteousness of God. When we get to the great white throne judgment here in a couple weeks, they get to stand before God. I mean, everybody will get to stand before God that is not saved and make their case. Maybe at that point, when they are literally standing before God, when it's too late, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So they will have a chance. They will have an opportunity. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right. Well, I, I'm glad you can make it out on a foggy night. Let's pray for safety before you go. So next week, we're going to get into false prophet, antichrist, Satan, being bound for a thousand years. We'll get into the millennial reign, I hope. Millennial reign is a huge subject. Um, I know there's only uh, three chapters left, but we're going to be in this for about another year. So let's pray. Would you guys stand with me, please? Lord, just safety for everybody as they travel home. And once again, there's still a lot of sickness going around. Just health and healing upon those through your mercy. But Lord, right here, right now, we, we hear this. And, and we know where we stand with you. But there's so many that don't know where they stand with you. Help us to take this information and apply it to go out and live it, Lord. To live it in how we witness and how we live and how we act. We know the truth of your return Help us to proclaim that boldly, to represent you for all of eternity, and to live it, to truly live it. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.